we're going to read this whole passage, and I'll, and I'll explain it in a second, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into it. Let me give you a little context for what's going on. Nehemiah, we're studying this, this man, this book, Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah takes place about 450 years before the coming of Christ. God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, have been taken captive. In, in, they were in what was known as Babylon. The Persian Empire has taken over Babylon. So God's people are captive in the Persian Empire. Nehemiah has led a group back to the homeland, back to Jerusalem, the city of Zion, to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. They've come back. They've built the wall. The wall's been completed. Last week we saw that they have this dedication, this uh, commencement, this, this ceremony to declare the wall has been completed, now let us, let us turn our faces to being in a new era, in a new day, the new people of God in his newly built Jerusalem, in his newly built city. So the people gather in the, in the court of the city that they have just rebuilt. It's this big moment, this huge moment, all this expectation. And then they begin the day by reading God's word for six hours and all the people start weeping. They weep and they mourn and their faces are in the dust because they hear the standard by which God requires them to be in order to be his people and representatives on the earth. And so they weep because they know who we are supposed to be is not who we are or who we have been. And so we saw that last week that the Lord then lifts their faces with Nehemiah. He then lifts their faces by saying, hey, this law of mine has exposed you, but I will be your protection and I will not punish you in this way. I, I, I am not going to condemn you. I, I will be your atonement for where you fall short. So that's what we looked at last week. Now, we are three weeks away from that moment. Three weeks have gone by since the falling to the ground in, in, in shame and in, um, in, in uh, disgust at themselves of who we are, and then their faces have been lifted, and for three weeks they have a party. For three weeks they have a celebration. It's called the Feast of the Trumpets, the Festival of the Trumpets. They're celebrating, they're, they're rejoicing. Our God has not given up on us. And now they regather in the temple courts. They regather in the, in the assembly. And they read some of the, the Old Testament scriptures, some of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They read that again. And then for the next like three hours, they confess their sins. For three hours, the people corporately all confess their sins. What we're about to read is a chunk of that corporate confession, which we just did with Daryl. We just did a corporate confession. We're about to read the people of God. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a chapter all. It's just corporate confession from the people of God. 38 verses of confession. Really, the confession starts at about verse 6. Um, the prayer of confession starts. But here's what you need to know that we're about to read. The, the, the confession is also a historical retelling. It's a story. They're confessing about their history. They're confessing. They go back to creation. They go back to creation and they start confessing who they have been to the Lord since day one. Who all their ancestors have been, who all their forefathers have been, and how they have sinned against the Lord and what the Lord's response has been to that. So they're building on this history and saying, this, this is who the people of God have been since the beginning. Okay. Ready for this? Okay. Hope you got coffee. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 38. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kidmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shaniah. Ch yep. 
And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Okay, now here begins the confession. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts and the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you, kept, you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By the pillar of cloud you led them in, in the day, and by the pillar of fire in the night to light, their, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to, to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as stars of heaven. and You brought them into the land that you, you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land so that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who you had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. At the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. 
Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to you to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn their wicked works, turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we come to your word, this uh, strange text, thousands of years old, that somehow, um, as we read the history of your people of Israel, you have something for us today. It is... It is uh, it's daring to believe that an ancient text is living and active and has um, the ability to cut us open. So we pray with, with where we are today and what your word has to say to us that we would not stiffen our necks, that we would not, um, we wouldn't, we would not um, refuse to believe what this prayer teaches us. Uh, grant us mercy now, um, we pray, because you are a great and merciful God. We pray now for the one who you have called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So a lot is going on. I promise we are not going to walk through the entire uh, prayer, kind of section by section. Um, we're going to kind of look at it as a whole. And today's topic is confession and repentance. Can everybody... See this. You probably wouldn't say, Joseph, you good? You would tell me the truth. You're my best bud. You'd tell me. Uh, can you see it? Okay. All right, so this is the topic of the day. Now, um, we're not going to walk through each section, but the reason why we need to read the whole thing, the reason why 38 verses was necessary is because there's something that we get from the whole of it that we can't necessarily get from any one part of it. So I tried really hard to, like, chip this away and, like, what if we just read, like, 10 verses or 20 verses? Like, is there a way to kind of get at it, but we can't? We need the whole thing in its entirety to understand this practice and understand what this passage has to teach us. So if you caught it, here's what the, the prayer just was. It, was. it had three, 
Now, it wasn't broken this way, it wasn't broken up this way in the English translation, uh, if you were reading in your Bible, but essentially in the ancient Hebrew, there are three stanzas, there are three uh, epics, three eras of Israel's history that it covers, and in those three epics, in those three kind of historical chunks of who Israel has been since the Lord called Abraham to be his people, there is this cycle there's this repetition. There's this same thing that happens in each epic. And this is what the cycle says. First the people rebel. Then the Lord punishes. He punished them. And usually that punishment looks like giving them over to their enemies that they might be captive to someone. They would be uh, handed over to their enemies who they hated. So the people rebel. Then they are punished. And then after they cry out, the people, God shows mercy. That is the cycle each time. And what happens, if you, if you were to go back and read these 38 verses like 10 times in a row, you would see this cycle. You would see, okay, here's the rebellion part of our history, here's the punishment part of our history, and then here's where God showed mercy. And each time it gets worse and worse. Each time it gets more intense. Each time the rebellion goes up a notch. Each time their punishment goes up a notch. So much so that the people are now living at the end of this epic and they're saying, hey God, this punishment that you sent us into captivity in another land, we're not even in our homeland anymore. We're still being punished for this. But here's why this, this is important for us to understand that this cycle, they pray themselves through the history of their cycle. It's not just that they're confessing their ancestors' sins. There's a time for that. There's actually a time to confess the sins of the people that came before you. It's not what the sermon's about. What they're doing, the reason why they do this cycle is because the first step of repentance is owning the fact that just like our ancestors, just like the way that they rebelled against you in these ways, now we are here after thousands of years of being your people, and we are still the same way. And so they are saying to the Lord, this is who we are. We're not victims of bad circumstances. We didn't just make a few bad decisions. We didn't stumble and fall and accidentally commit some, some heinous acts. It's in our bloodline, it's in our history. And so the first step of confession and repentance is to admit this, this is who I am. They are saying to the Lord, we come by this rebellion honestly. And our rebellion is so historic, our rebellion is so cyclical, our rebellion is so sure to happen, the, the stuff that we're doing now to you it is in our bloodline. This is not some mistake that we've made in our sinning. This is who I am when I sin before you. It's like at the core of my being, this sin problem that I have, this rebellion problem that I have. And if they didn't recount all of this, if they just started with their own sins, there could be a way to acknowledge the sin and to downplay it. There could be a way to acknowledge the sin and to go, but it's not that big of a deal. Until you look at the thousands of years of cycle that came before them and go, nope, we're the same as them. We're no better than them. This is who I am at the core. And this is, this, this admission is the first step of true biblical confession, true biblical repentance. To admit that, this is who I am. This is what I do. I'm crooked deep down, like way at the bottom. I'm, I'm not okay. This is the first step of repentance. The problem is, when I was practicing on my whiteboard in my office, it's a bigger whiteboard, so we're going to be a little crunched here, okay? I've got a lot to say, so you need to buckle up, okay? So here we go. When they say, this is who I am, that is, the, that is the healthy first step of biblical repentance. The problem with that is, is that can often lead to and sound a whole lot like this 
very dark word known as shame. Now, you may not um, think about your shame very often. You may not realize uh, how much shame has a hold on you. You may not even um, realize the amount that like, shame is like oxygen, that we're just breathing it in. But this dark, hazy power of toxic shame does something to us. And it starts with this, with this same similar phrasing. This is just who I am. This, this is who I am. And when we get into the shave came, a shave, shave, <laughs> I'm feeling so much shame right now. When we get into the shame cave, this is what begins to happen. Our shame loves to tell us a story. It loves to write a narrative about our life. It loves to tell us that because of the things we've done, this is who we are. And it loves to give us an identity, it loves to write a story about our life, and so when we are lost in shame, we are stuck in a belief about who we really are because of the story that shame is telling us. But here's where it gets worse. Let me give you a little neurobiology. How about this? When you experience shame, when you feel shame, shame is chemically uh, like diagnosable in the brain, like chemicals are released when you're experiencing it. Here's what happens. Your prefrontal cortex, where shame is experienced in the brain, has a direct line access to your long-term memory. What does that mean? When you feel ashamed about something, when you feel shame, guess what that feeling and the prefrontal cortex has in its repertoire to do to you? It has all of your memories of everything you've ever done. And so when you feel shame, your brain is immediately Rolodexing in your long-term memory, immediately pulling out the file cabinet. In nanoseconds, it is pulling out the file cabinet to bring evidence up to confirm how you're feeling. You feel shame? You should feel shame. Remember? And then when you feel more shame, it continues to tell you who you are and guess where it takes you again. So psychiatrists, therapists would call this the spiral of shame. You are caught in it. And literally at the brain, like the neurobiological level, you can't get out of it. Because how you're feeling is being confirmed by your memory, which makes you feel that way anymore, which then confirms to you more memories of why you should feel that way. Make sense? So when you are up against, when you're in the, the shame cave, it's nearly impossible to get out. It's really hard to combat. It's really hard to argue with the evidence that the shame, like when it pulls out exhibit A for why you should be feeling this way, and it brings up stuff, not imaginary stuff, it brings up actual stuff that you've done, actual stuff that you've thought about, actual stuff that you fantasize about, when it brings up actual stuff that's been done to you, it's really hard to argue with it because it's great evidence. You can't argue with the evidence that's being presented because you were there and you did it and you felt it and you thought it and you dreamt it. So how can you argue with exhibit A, A through Z that the brain is bringing up? It's really hard in the courtroom to go, well, I don't think I should feel ashamed for that, but man, I feel shame. And now that's confirming to me the memories that I have and the actions that I've done that is bringing that memory up, I guess they're right. I guess the story shame wants to tell me is true. The memory makes you feel the shame, which triggers another memory to confirm it. And now we're lost in the spiral of shame. And so the enemy loves, I, I, I believe this, biblically, experientially, interpersonally, I believe this. 
Shame is the enemy's greatest tool. If the enemy can get you to believe the lies that shame is telling you, then he will stop you from creating any beauty in the world. Because you will believe stories about you that shame wants to tell you. And so our response to shame then, how we, how we are then um, like trained and programmed literally to deal with the shame and the story and the spiral of shame is now shame, when we experience shame, shame becomes about survival. And so the same prefrontal cortex is where your fight or flight or freeze responses, like I am in danger, I am feeling threatened, I have to do something about it, and so here's how we respond. When the enemy brings up shame, our own brain takes over and then brings up the memories to confirm it, and now we're in survival mode, I gotta get out of this. And so the way that we have been trained to defend ourselves, to survive against the attack of shame is in these ways. We hide, which is shame loves to do, because it keeps us in the cave. We cover we'll talk about that in just a minute, a little bit. We love to, to try to cover our, our, our sense of shame. Maybe if I go do a bunch of good things now, I can like counterbalance the way that I feel right now. Maybe if I just hide behind a facade of who I want other people to think that I am, I won't feel this way anymore. So we, we hide and then we try to cover ourselves with something and then we blame. And blame can look a lot of different ways. It usually looks like getting really, really defensive, really, really angry, rage-filled, Blame is never gentle. <laughs> Blame is never full of empathy, okay? And so these responses, I could, I could list dozens of others. These are some core ones. These are survival mechanisms. We shut down, we cower, we turn, we try to cover ourselves and we get angry. So here, would you just dare to believe that when you do these things, when you are hiding from people, when you're trying really hard to cover up something or you're blaming other people or you experience that from people in your life, would you dare to believe that it has everything to do with this right here? You're not dealing with someone who's angry. They're angry, but the reason why they're angry is because of this right here. They are covered in shame. They've been living in their shame cave for decades. You're not gonna get them just to calm down. You're not gonna be able to like talk gentleness into them. And that, that's just one example. Th this is, these, these ways that we try to cover and defend ourselves, to try to cover our heads, to try to hide from people, to try to blame other people, is rooted in something way different than just anger management, right? So this is how we deal with it. We see this, and this is, this, if you've been around church for a little while, this would not surprise you, but we actually see all of this playing out at the birthplace of shame, which is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, God's good garden, God's garden of delight. That's what Eden means, the garden of delight. They're in the garden of delight, they're experiencing it, and the way that the garden of delight wraps up its description of itself in Genesis chapter two is this, and Adam and Eve were naked, and they felt no shame. You can't imagine a reality like that. And then Genesis three, we meet the serpent, and the serpent tempts them to distrust the Lord and to rebel against him and to, 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 to think that God is not good, and so they sin, they eat the fruit. And the moment that they, the moment, the nanosecond that they sin against the Lord, shame enters the picture for the first time in human history. And we see their response to it. This is, this is not just, like modern therapy didn't just show us this. It does, there's great books I could show you that, that explain all this on, on, a, on a personal, mental, neurological level. But this is in Genesis three. When they experience shame, these are the first things that they do. They hide from the Lord, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, like no one should see me like this, and then they blame each other and they blame the Lord. 
So they're not just, they just haven't destroyed their uh, intimacy with the Lord because of their shame, because of their sin and what shame does. Their intimacy with each other, they can't connect with each other because they're not just hiding and covering and blaming the Lord, they're doing it with each other too. I don't just not want the Lord to see me, I don't want you to see me. I don't just, I'm, this is what Adam says, and Eve does it too, this is what Adam says in his blame uh, for the shame that he's feeling. He says, the Lord comes to Adam and says, why did you eat the fruit? And he says, this woman you gave me. It's not just one of y'all's fault, it's both of y'all's fault. Here's what I know, it's not my fault. I have to get this off of me. I can't feel this way anymore. I'm surviving right now. The reason why they do this is the same reason why we do it. Shame in the prefrontal cortex is about self-protection. It's about survival. And the, and the thought, I mean, the, like the idea of someone seeing you in that place is terrifying. Like if they really knew, I'm feeling this, my memory has confirmed this, it's put me in the shame cave. If someone saw me like this, there's, there's, there's no way I could let anybody see me like this, see who I really am. And so at the, at the core of shame, shame is rooted in, and all of this cycle is rooted in, this reality right here, the reality of being seen. Shame has to do with being seen. I don't want you to see me like this, so I will hide from you, I will cover myself, and I will blame other people. You cannot see me this way. Being naked, being known, and, and not, not just like being known, like your best friend knows your favorite movies, um, or even your best friend that may know your, your, like your secrets, which we've all got secrets. I, I mean like being known at the bottom. Not, not, not just like the worst things you've done. I mean like the darkest things you believe about yourself. I mean the darkest things you believe about people in your life. I mean being seen at the bottom in the darkest things you believe about the Lord. Dark place. The cave has zero light in it. Shame is about being seen in the unspeakable and indefensible places of your soul. And so shame refuses to be seen that way. I will not let you see me because I am too ashamed to be seen. To be seen is to be vulnerable. To be seen is to let someone see who you really are, and shame cannot bear being seen, because here's what we believe. I'm running out of space right here, but in the shame spiral, here's what we are terrified of. If you saw me, then you would actually confirm to me my greatest fear, which is the fact that you and everyone else will abandon me. That is what shame is terrified of. If you saw me, you'd leave me. If you knew the things that I believed about myself, if you knew the things that I had done, if you knew me at the bottom, you would have every right to believe what I already believe about myself, how unlovable I am. You'd leave too. I wanna leave me. That's why I want to hide, cover, and blame everybody. Because if I can put up this facade, maybe you won't leave me. But if you actually see me, you will abandon me. And if you play, I, you, you may go, I don't know if I've got fear of abandonment. And I would go, you don't know how bad it is then. Because at the bottom of your shame is the conviction and the convincing that if they saw you, they would leave you. Re re really saw you. Really saw all that you fantasized about. 
really saw all that you'd done, really saw all that you believed, they leave you. So maybe I can keep from being seen in that place, and I will hide, I will cover, I will blame. Again, this can look a bunch of different ways. I don't mean to minimize those to, like these are the only three things. They can play themselves out a bunch of different ways. It looks like deflection. It looks like defensiveness. It looks like an inflated view of self. Always having to like keep your righteousness intact and, and make sure that you, people know you're better than everybody else. It looks like pretending. It looks like being really busy. It looks like rage. It looks like downplaying and minimizing the impact of your actions on people. Like, well, yeah, I mean, okay, so I'm sorry I did that, but you shouldn't have been that hurt either. Or I'm sorry, but it wasn't that, like you're overreacting to what I did to you. That is not, all these wonderful ways. And I, again, I've, I've got 10 more listed, but we're gonna move on. These are all the wonderful ways that we try and stop ourselves from being truly seen. So, the confession and repentance begins with, this is who I am, but do you see how quickly that this confession of this is who I am, which is what the Israelites are doing, based on their history, this is who we are, this is who we are, but do you see how quickly it can get you into the shame cycle, into the shame cave, into, this, into the pattern that you can't get out of? But this is not the end of biblical repentance. Biblical repentance starts here, doesn't end here. Biblical repentance also includes not just this is who I am, it includes this is who he is. That's the end of biblical repentance. You don't stop when only thinking about who you are, and you see this in the confession of the people. Yes, I'm starting with this is who I really am, but it's going to end with this is who he really is. So if you go back through the three cycles over here, you have the rebellion, the punishment, the giving over, and then the mercy. You, you, would, you would notice that, that, again, we said it intensifies, the rebellion intensifies, their punishment intensifies, but so does the mercy. Like the way that the cycle keeps telling itself and, and they keep confessing it out loud is that his mercy kept getting more. His mercy kept getting stronger. Like every season, every, every epic, every era of their history, he continued to show more mercy. So you, you can see that in, in the language. But right in the middle of the whole confession is this one sentence. And we have to focus on this sentence. It's the only, it's the only verse I'm gonna read from the whole passage because if you read this cycle over and over again, a logical response, a logical question that if you read about the rebellion, the punishment, and the mercy, a logical response would be, uh, hold the phone. God, why did you keep showing mercy to these constant rebels? They had thousands of years to get it right. Why in the world did you keep showing them mercy? Why in the world is there even a third part of this cycle? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make any sense. That sounds like abuse. That sounds like codependency. Like that you would keep showing mercy to people who keep rebelling against you. And the answer is, the reason why he showed them mercy is not because of the level of their rebellion deserved it. He kept showing them mercy because that's who he is. So just as much as confession begins with an admission of this is who I am, it has to also land on the mercy that I'm going to receive is not because of anything I've done. It's because this is who he is. So there's this one sentence. 
There's just one line. It comes in the second half of verse 17, and it's potentially the thesis statement of the whole section. In fact, what is said about the Lord here, Allie, I'll have you throw up verse 17 in just a second, if you can. It's already up there. Did you already jump the gun because you know me when I preach? Um, you see me, Allie. Thank you. Uh, but there, there's, this, there's this statement about who the Lord is. And when it makes this statement, it's not just a list of his best attributes. It's actually the most oft-repeated statement about the Lord in the entire Old Testament. It lists his characteristics. It lists his attributes. But it's not them picking out their favorite ones while they're confessing their sins. It's them saying, this was said about you at Mount Sinai thousands of years ago, and every biblical book since Exodus has said this about you. This is the most repeated credo about the Lord in the entire Old Testament. Nearly every Old Testament book repeats this same sentence, word for word, about who the Lord is. Second half of verse 17. This is who he is. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. But you are a God that is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. If we were going to try to sum that up, the qualities that they just, who is he, this sentence, this Old Testament credo statement about who is the Lord, those attributes just describe to you that your God, the God of the Bible, is a loyal lover. And I mean every ounce of both of those words. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean, especially in this paradigm of our confession and then waging war with our shame? It's that our shame is all about the fear of being seen. It's that our shame is all about the fear of being totally known and totally naked because if you saw me that way, you would leave me too. And anytime we begin repentance or begin confession, we're risking being seen because we are confessing to the Lord, this is who I am. And when you do that, when you confess to the Lord who you really are, your loyal lover says, I know. And I'm not going anywhere. I see you. All of you. In fact, here's what makes it even more terrifying. He sees more of you than you do. But your loyal lover can't leave you. This is the loyal lover who wants to see all of you. And so if we were to break this down, we would say as much as shame is all about being seen, so is repentance. That yes, there is this fear of being seen, but healthy repentance knows that. And healthy repentance is willing to risk being seen again by the loyal lover that you're confessing to. That over against all the places we might hide, cover, and blame, that over against all the places that we would be so terrified of being seen, if the loyal lover truly sees us, here's what that actually does to us. It tells us that we don't have to hide anymore. It tells us we don't have to blame anymore because we are now someone who is wanted. We are now someone who is pursued. And we are now someone who is cherished. And then you see that and you go, Wait, 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 wait. 
all of me is seen and I'm still wanted. All of me is seen and I'm still pursued by him. All of me is seen and I'm cherished. But hold up, preach. I don't, I don't deserve that. And you go, wait, 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 wait. But that's not who it feels like who I am. I don't feel those things. And this is, this is, this is the shift that can only happen in repentance. This, you cannot get to this point if you don't repent to the Lord. You can't. Is that you aren't these things because of who you are. You're these things because of who he is. And so you get these things when you come in repentance, you get a new identity. You get a new story. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And so any of the language that we would begin to spew out and begin to say and begin to justify and to try to prove and, and, and argue with and going, well, maybe I won't feel as much shame if I just do better next time. Maybe I won't feel as much shame. Maybe I can prove to you and the Lord that I deserve to be wanted, pursued, and cherished, and you would still be only staying on this half of the board because that is all saying, well, no, 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 no. This is who I am. I can be someone who's wanted, pursued, and cherished. I can do that. I can earn that. I can, I, can, I can achieve that. And if you demand to change who you are on your own, you will stay in the shame cave. But if you get who you are, if you get a new identity because of who he is, you actually can experience transformation. This is who you are now because of who he is. And when all this comes together, when our, when our, when our uh, confession that says, this is, this is who I am, I've done it again, this is who I am, and we meet that with who the Lord is, and all of this that, that gets so muddy and sticky and dark, then gets healed over here, and now we go from someone who is terrified of being abandoned to someone who is never abandoned. You're unabandoned because the Lord is a loyal lover. You're unabandoned, not because you got your act together, because the Lord is a loyal lover. You're unabandoned, not because you proved and blamed and shifted and downplayed and justified enough. You're unabandoned because of who the Lord is. That's who you are. Here's, a, here's an exercise or a question that I got to participate in this week as well at a little conference that my wife and I were at. And I want you to, you may need to close your eyes for this. It's two questions, but it's in light of all this to try to get you to understand what we're talking about over here. I want you to think, ponder for a minute. Literally, maybe close your eyes. What does the Lord, what does God the Father think of you when he sees you right now, this very moment, right now? What does God the Father think of you when he sees you this very moment. And now I ask this question, and what can you do to change it? If you know that the Lord is a loyal lover, you know there's nothing you can do to change it. His delight in you originates with him. His love for you is rooted in him. It flows out of him to you, not the other way around. So, so, if you think 
you can affect how the Lord feels about you, you are stuck over here. It's actually a great exposer of our pride. You think you're important enough to change who the Lord of the universe is? You think you can do something to change that he's a loyal lover? I'm, I hate to break it to you, you're not that important. Because the love of God originates from God. It's not based on merit or deserving. It can't be, because then that wouldn't be who he is. That would still be focusing on only who I am. So if that's true, or rather, since that's true, here's what we get to do. And th th Okay, if you don't have this side, what I'm about to say to you is terrifying. If you do have this side, then what I'm about to say to you is an invitation. Because if this is true, if when you marry who you are to who the Lord is, and you get a new identity because of who he is, not because of who you are, guess what you and I get to step into often, like all the time? We get to be a people of constant repentance. And not just with the Lord, but like with our spouse, with our children, with our siblings, with people who have harmed us. Now I'm not saying, now there are people who are unsafe to repent to. I'm not saying you have to be, you have to repent and confess. I'm not, I'm not talking about like being um, irresponsible and being not a good steward of this. What I'm saying is, is that typically the reasons why we don't love to repent to those that we've sinned against is because of the shame cave that keeps us there. But if your shame has been healed because of who the Lord is, then now I can, I can go to my wife and I can say, I blew it this morning. And I royally screwed up. And, and I'm not just saying to you, like I'm not just confessing to you to get this off my chest so I feel better. I'm coming and I'm telling you, this is who I am. And I'm risking how you might respond to me. You may not respond graciously. I'm, I shouldn't be talking about my wife this way. Hypothetically, she may not respond great, okay? My wife is incredibly gracious. What I mean is, is if you have been seen by the only loyal lover that matters and he has not abandoned you, then, then someone some earthly abandonment cannot threaten me. I have been seen to the bottom and unabandoned. So now if I need to confess something to you, admit something to you, uh, come to you and ask for forgiveness, I don't have to be afraid of that. I don't have to hide, cover, or blame myself. I can act, get this, I can act, this, this takes so much courage and healing to do this, I can actually explore the amount of impact my sin has had on you. That's terrifying to know what it's like to be in my ecosystem and the wounds that I've caused, like with my kids, my family, my family pays the price of who I am. This is who I am. But now I can come and I can actually explore with them, hey, will you tell me how my sin hurt you? And I'm all ears. I'm not gonna do any of this. I don't have to, because I've been seen and loved to the bottom. So now, when you're telling me about how my sin has hurt you, guess what I can do? Listen to you. Repent even more with you. Not defend myself. Because of who the Lord is, I have a new identity. Which means I don't have to be afraid of your rejection or your dismissal or your abandonment of me. I don't even have to justify myself to you. I don't have to have you see me in a certain light because the Lord whose sight only matters has already seen me and not left me. The only eyes that matter have not abandoned me. 
But if we were to go back to this prayer, this three stanza, three cycle prayer that they do, um, you, and you read it and you studied it, and like you read it a bunch of times and you knew the historical context, you, you would know, like, oh, it's like, it's like not done. Like something needs to happen because the way that they end the prayer is, is basically saying, hey God, in this cycle, like they kind of start this like next era, this, the, they're trying to like start this new era, this new epic, this new age of Israel, and basically saying, hey, we're still caught in the second step of this cycle. We're still being punished. We're still in captivity to the Persian Empire. And so they're saying like, Will you deliver us? Like, hey, you've done this every time. Like, we, 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 we now, this is who we are. This is who you are. Now, we'd love, we'd love like that last step to kind of kick in. And so the reader is actually longing for a fourth cycle. That's kind of how it ends. Like, oh, is it going to happen? Like, is, are they going to get set free from Persian captivity? But if you know your history, you know that in a few years from this moment of Persian captivity, the whole known world would be taken over by Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire. And so they, they are now in captivity to another ruler, another earthly ruler that is not their king. And then a few years after that, they will be taken captive by the Roman Empire, the Romans who will have, have you know, far expand Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great's rule and his stretch. And so all, like Persian Empire went to Greek Empire and the Greek Empire goes to Persian Empire and so literally hundreds of years go by and they're st- like still waiting for this, like come on, Lord, like I, we, we need to be set free from the captivity. We're in our homeland and we're, and we're not, we don't have a king here. And so this prayer in their eyes and the generations that would come from them doesn't get answered in the way that they hoped it would. But as the story does progress, and you follow the cycles, there actually is a fourth cycle. There actually is a fourth display of God's mercy. A fourth stanza would be added in which God would move mercifully once more. Except in this cycle, there would be this cycle, and it would be the final one. There would just be one little twist to this cycle of God acting mercifully again. It's that in the person and work and death and resurrection of Jesus, here's how the cycle would go. We would rebel, Jesus would be punished, and now there's only mercy for you. That in the same way that they pray through this, Lord, we've rebelled, you punished us, show us your mercy. There needs to be no more stanza because we have rebelled. Jesus was punished for you, which leaves leaves, because the cycle's done, there's only mercy for you now. Because there's only mercy for you, you can come before him with no fear of being seen. He has already seen who you really are, your loyal lover who cannot abandon you. And so, Christian, Midtowner, would you dare to risk repenting before the Lord on a regular basis? Would you dare to become a people of repentance as you fall into who he really is in your confession? Let's pray. Jesus, um, this is who we are. We're a people who um, in our hearts worship many other things. We spit on your 
your grace, we, um, we cry out to false gods and we feed on ashes. And so in our confession of who we really are as we come to you now, do not let us leave this place without a fresh taste of who you really are, Jesus, we pray. Guide us now in our repentance as we confess and fall into the arms of our loyal lover. Let's call this in the name of Jesus. Amen.